chapter 1, verses 18b through 26. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the word of the Lord. I think I've mentioned this uh, once before, back when Jeff Bradford was here. One of the things you could notice uh, about the difference between us is that uh, when he would come up here to start preaching, he would always grab the stand and move it forward, um, and I always grab it and move it back. Um, I'm not sure what that says about us as pastors, but um, it is, um, I'm really grateful for this uh, opportunity to share God's word with you one last time uh, on this uh, bittersweet morning, uh, my last Sunday here, uh, well, at least as an elder and member, and um, so let me just pray for us, and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would take uh, these feeble words and that you might use them to help us see and to love and to follow Jesus better. In his great and powerful and precious name we pray. Amen. So one of the uh, many reasons that I love scripture uh, is its variety, right? Uh, in fact, there's kind of a variety of varieties, right? A variety of authors, variety of genres, variety of historical periods, all of that kind of stuff. And one of the varieties in scripture is sort of the uh, scope or the magnitude of what's being discussed in a given passage. Uh, what I mean by that is that some passages are about really sort of specific situations in life and how to handle them in God's perspective, so, for instance, Matthew 18, 15 begins with these words, if your brother sins against you, specific situation, and then it proceeds to give some specific instructions. And there are other passages that are even more specific about more specific situations. Uh, some, those are some of the passages that often seem odd to us because they are so historically specific. But then you have other passages that don't deal with specific things like that, but deal with the big questions the foundational things. And our passage for today is one of those passages. I had lunch with Jeff King the other week, and I was kidding that my, only half kidding, that my working title for the sermon was Life, Death, and some other pretty important stuff. Uh, because in this passage, Paul speaks literally about life and death. About life and death. And more importantly, he speaks about both of them through the lens of the surpassing and supreme importance of Jesus. 
And so that's what we want to talk about today. The supreme importance of Jesus, the surpassing importance of Jesus, and then the perspective that that gives us on life and death. And so just as a heads up about how this sermon is structured, often I'll mention a point or points, and then I'll point you to the passage uh, that the point is drawn from. But today what we're going to do is kind of work in reverse. We'll walk through a section of verses at a time, and then I'll mention the point or points that I want to draw from them. And so I want to begin with verses 18 through 20. Look at verse 18b at the beginning of our passage. Paul writes, Yes, and I will rejoice. Paul has just said in the first half of the verse that he rejoices over the fact that Christ is being preached, even though some people are doing it out of selfish ambition. Right? The unspoken idea is that God uses even selfish messengers to bring people to Christ because the power of the message is greater than the weakness of the messenger. So in verse 18a, Paul rejoices, present tense. And in, but in verse 18b, he says that he will rejoice, future tense. It's almost like a commitment or a declaration he's making. But why will he rejoice? Well, look at verse 19. It begins with the word for, which means that a reason or explanation or grounding is about to be given. And he writes, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. The situation that he's in, in prison, facing trial, somehow is going to work out for his deliverance. And though there's some debate among biblical scholars, the word deliverance here probably doesn't refer to Paul's release from prison, or at least uh, exclusively that. Uh, but I believe that Paul here is referring to the ultimate deliverance, that he will be saved and vindicated in the ultimate sense when he stands before God on Judgment Day. And intimately intertwined with this uh, deliverance is what he writes in verse 20. Look at that verse. He says, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. This this verse speaks to the fact that intertwined with that deliverance that he's talking about and part of that deliverance, and if you want a prelude to that deliverance, if you will, is, that, is Paul's remaining steadfast in his mission to honor Christ. What Paul specifically has in mind is probably his impending trial. And as he approaches that trial, what he's looking forward to isn't necessarily his release from prison or earthly vindication. Instead, his eager expectation and his hope, and Christian hope isn't wishful, wishfulness but certainty, is that he'll have the courage to honor Christ before the Roman officials, including perhaps even Caesar himself. Now, to be clear, this isn't self-confidence. As he says in the previous verse, it'll only help happen through the help of the Holy Spirit. Uh, through the God who, as Paul wrote a few verses earlier, will finish the work that he began in his people. But what I want you to see is that Paul's driving concern is that Christ will be honored. Or to put it another way, for Paul, Christ is of supreme and surpassing importance. So how important is Jesus to you? 
as I said, this passage deals with some of the most fundamental issues of life. And nothing is more fundamental than the question, how important is Jesus to you? How important is honoring him in your life? Is he the most important thing in your life? Some of you may not even yet know him personally. You may be here checking out this thing called Christianity. And if that's you, we're really glad you're here. We, we really want to honor you as you investigate who Jesus is. And one of the ways that we want to honor you is to let you know up front who he is and what he calls us to. We don't want to pull some bait and switch where we soft sell him. Uh, because he isn't here just to fix this or that part of your life or to make you a slightly better person. He's here to do something much more fundamental and much more radical. What he's here to do is to displace you as the center of your life. He's here to retake his throne in your life. But this isn't a call to some sort of masochistic or painful life. Rather, it's the key to joy because his glory is what we were made for. I remind you again that the first words of this passage today is Paul's rejoicing. Even as others seek to undermine him, even as he's in prison, even as he awaits trial that may end in his execution, he is rejoicing. Can the pursuit of your own glory give you that kind of rock-solid joy? Has it done it so far? So we return to the question for everyone. Is Jesus of supreme and surpassing importance to you? Is honoring him your supreme and surpassing concern? Consider the various situations you're in right now in life, whether at work or in relationships or whatever else. Is honoring Jesus in those situations your supreme concern? Or is it your honor, your comfort, your fulfillment that is of supreme concern? If you're on the mountaintop today, is your supreme concern to give thanks to God, to praise him for his provision, to let others know just how generous a God he's been? Or is it to pat yourself on the back and to enjoy the spoils and to live the good life? There's nothing wrong, and I want you to hear me, there's nothing wrong with enjoying God's gifts. But is that more important than honoring Christ? And if you're in the valley is your supreme concern to honor Christ, to show how supremely precious he is despite all circumstance? Or are you consumed with self-pity or driven by desire to simply to get out of the situation? There's nothing wrong with praying that God would bring change in difficult circumstances. It's good and right to pray for that. But is that more important than honoring Christ? Is Christ of supreme importance to you? Is honoring him the most important thing in your life? If the answer is no, as it is far too often for me, then there's obviously a lot of work still to be done. But even if the answer is yes, that honoring Jesus is the most important thing in your life, that may still be underselling him. Because I confess that the way that I've worded the question is kind of a trick question. Why? Because to say that Jesus 
and honoring Jesus are supremely important is not just to say that they are the most important thing in your life. It's to say that they are more important than even life itself. Look again at verse 20. Paul's eager expectation and hope is that Christ will be honored in his body, whether by life or by death. As Paul faces trial, his concern is to honor Christ, which will include proclaiming the message that Jesus is Savior and Lord in the face of Caesar's claim to be those things. And his concern to do that is greater than his concern for whether he lives or even dies. And we'll see why that's the case in a little bit. This isn't Paul being reckless. This isn't him being masochistic or glorifying suffering or death. It's simply him working out the reality that Jesus and honoring Jesus are of supreme importance, even more important than life itself. We see an amazing picture of this in the book of Daniel. Uh, Some of you are familiar with the story. In chapter 3, we read about Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They, like Daniel, were taken captive to Babylon when that empire conquered the southern tribes of Judah. And the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, has a giant statue of himself built and has all the peoples of the empire were called to bow down before it. However, Daniel's three friends won't do so. And so they're brought before Nebuchadnezzar and told to either bow down or be killed in the furnace. And they reply, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of, he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, But even if he does not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. God and honoring God were more important than life itself. Why? Because as Psalm 63 declares, your steadfast love is better than life. David wrote those words in the wilderness as he fled for his own life. Your steadfast love, O Lord, is better than life. Paul's perspective here, that Jesus and honoring him are more important than even life itself, is a difficult one for us to grasp for a lot of reasons, and we can't get into those reasons today. But I just want to mention that just this past week, we get hints of that, though, in our day-to-day life. So just this week... uh, I was able to get a slightly different, uh, deeper appreciation for it. Uh, as uh, some of you know, many of you know, I got engaged last weekend. Um, <laughs> holla! Uh, my parents can now check that off the very long prayer list that they've been praying for many a decade. Uh, I think there was a very large thanks offering in the church uh, offering plate last Sunday. Right? So, but... Um, Got engaged last weekend, so that's been very much on my mind, obviously, and thinking about, you know, getting married and all this stuff. And then this passage has been on my mind this week, right? Um, and then there have been other things on my mind, just about the brokenness of human relationships and all these kinds of things. And so I've, I was praying about all of that. Those things were swirling around in my mind this week as I was praying. 
And uh, one day, as I was praying kind of spontaneously, uh, the following words came out of my mouth. That, Lord, I would rather die than be unfaithful to her. And I began to pray that God would continue to grow the central importance of being faithful to her. And not just kind of in a minimal, I never slept with anyone else kind of way, uh, even though that that's itself is a great grace, uh, but in a robust, a long, every day, pretty flourishing kind of way. Now, of course, marriage, even at its best, is only a secondary picture of our relationship to Jesus. And only he is supremely important. Only he is more important than life itself. And of course, there is grace for all the times when we actually fail to consider him supremely important. Just like there was grace for Peter after he denied Jesus three times. And yet it's my hope that Jesus would grow to be supremely important for us all. And that we would honor him in sickness and in death, for richer or for poorer, in good times and bad, till death do us reunite. And remaining faithful to him in death, now I don't necessarily mean a martyr's death, but simply just death, remaining faithful to him in death may be one of the greatest testimonies any of us gets to give to Jesus. Our greatest ministry may come at the end of our life. We as Christians don't die as punishment. Right? After all, Romans 8.1 tells us that there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. So you and I, believers, don't die as punishment for sin. There are several other reasons we die, and one of them being that it affords us an opportunity to honor him, to give one last testimony. In Romans 14, 7 and 8, Paul writes, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. In speaking of believers in heaven, Revelation 12, 1 says, They, meaning the believers, have conquered him, meaning Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. And though the reference is specifically to martyrs, it's true for all of us that part of the conquest of Satan and his kingdom involves loving Jesus more in life. And we love Jesus. We love Jesus more than life because he first loved us more than his own life. Honoring Jesus is supremely important to us because honoring the Father was supremely important to him, even when it meant dying on behalf of you and me. And as that sinks into our hearts, we can echo Paul's thinking in the next section we're going to look at, verses 21 through 24. Why can Paul be confident as he approaches his trial that he will maintain honor in Christ as his supreme and surpassing priority? Why is, it that his supreme prior, why is that his supreme priority to begin with? 
Well, look at verse 21. It again begins with the word for, right? Meaning that a reason is about to be given. And Paul writes, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul's supreme priority is to honor Christ, whether in life or death, and is confident that he will do so because for him, to live is Christ and to die is gain. In the Greek, there are actually no verbs in this verse. And so there's a very sort of terse, uh, rhetorically powerful rhythm to the words. Um, It's hard to translate into English. It reads something like, for to me, to live, Christ, to die, gain, to live, Christ, to die, gain. As one scholar puts it, Paul's own heartbeats are heard in the rhythm of the words. To live, boom, boom. Christ, boom, boom. To die, boom, boom. Gain, boom, boom. These words are the heartbeat of his life. And they express in a different way the supreme importance of Jesus. So what about for you? How would you complete the sentence? For to me, to live is. What do you dream about? What do you get upset over? What gets you most excited? What needs to happen so that you can get to the end of your life and say, I have lived well. I've lived well. For many of us, the problem isn't that Christ would be absent from our answer, but that he would have too much company. Our answer, my answer, would be, for me to live is Christ. And to be successful in ministry. And to be respected by others. And to get to travel a lot and to have some material pleasures, and on and on and on. There's obviously nothing wrong with those things. They're, in fact, good things, but they don't belong in the definition of your life at its core. For Paul, Christ and honoring him are of supreme importance because Christ is the essence of life. For Paul, to live is to know Christ to fellowship with Christ, to love Christ, to enjoy Christ, to follow Christ, to honor Christ, to proclaim Christ, and then to return to Christ. And what was true for Paul, I hope, will be true for us as we go through life. Because Christ is the source of our lives. He's the joy of our lives, the strength of our lives, the purpose of our lives, and so much more. And when that's the case, then dying is gain. Why? Well, look at the second half of verse 23. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Dying is gain because in death, you get more of Christ, who is your life. Who is your life. And one of the things that I want you to see is how inseparable these two things are, your understanding of life and your understanding of death 
how inseparable they are for Paul, right? How do you know, for instance, if you can honestly say that for you to live is Christ? How, how do you know if you can say that? Well, you know because and only because you can say to die is gain. If you can't say that to die is gain, it's because Christ has so much company in your definition of life. Company that will be lost at death, and which therefore makes it impossible for you to consider death gain. Most of us in this room are young enough that we still have a lot we're looking forward to experiencing in life. Even the uh, more mature of us in this room uh, are young enough uh, that you have presumably many good years left. We have a lot we're looking forward to. Some of us are looking forward to being married. Um, right? Some of us are looking forward to a lot of success in our careers or having children or, or um, you know, a lot of traveling or whatever we're looking forward to and on and on. But if you are in Christ and were to die tonight without experiencing any of those things, you would not be sorry or regretful. You would not mourn that bucket list you didn't get to fulfill. Paul doesn't just say that to die is gain. Look again at verse 23. He says that to depart and be with Christ is far better. It's not even close. And this is important for us not only as we consider our own death, but obviously the death of those whom we have lost. If we have loved ones who have died in Christ, death for them was not tragic. As they sit in the presence of Jesus, they are not regretting all the things they didn't experience. They have gained and gained immeasurably. Now, this does not mean that we don't grieve. And it certainly doesn't mean that we immediately try to comfort someone who's grieving by telling them this. We do grieve, but not as those without hope. We grieve for our loss. And we grieve, and indeed we rage, that death has intruded into God's good creation because of sin. And we eagerly await the day when death will be defeated forever as Christ returns and ushers in the new heavens and the new earth but we don't grieve for our loved ones who are now with Christ, which is far, far better. And this is important because unless we really grasp that, many of us are going to struggle with bitterness and doubt and frustration. As I said, I want you to see how inseparable your understanding of life and your understanding of death are. You can't say that for you to live is Christ unless you can say that to die is gain. But conversely, you can't say that to die is gain unless you can say that to live is Christ. Death being a gain isn't a promise for everyone, but only for those for whom living is Christ. Otherwise, to die is great loss. And particularly if you're still investigating who Jesus is, I want to challenge you on the fact that your understanding of life has to take into account death. 
If you don't have an answer for death, then you don't yet have an answer for life. Because death stands waiting, despite all of our denials, despite all of our distraction, and it mocks every one of our pretensions. And even if you have the answer in Christ, has it really sunk in such that you can echo Paul's words? Jerry Seinfeld has this online project called uh, Comedians and Cars Getting Coffee, which pretty much explains what the thing is, right? And uh, so in the episode featuring Brian Regan, some of you may know him as a comedian, right? Uh, Jerry, in a moment of candor, as they're sitting in a diner, says, all human endeavor is just killing time. All of it. In this unguarded moment, this man who's achieved everything in life acknowledges the fundamental pointlessness of it. Because if your life isn't about something that can outlast death, then you, you're just killing time. Life and death are inseparable and only and the only thing that can hold them together and give them both meaning is the supreme importance of Jesus. But when he is supremely important, such that life and death are now understood in light of him, the result is both real joy and freedom. Both joy and freedom suffuse this passage because Paul has found the answer to both life and death, which are inseparable in the supreme importance of Christ. And if you want both joy and freedom, then you have to understand in a deep way what Paul came to understand. Right? Consider, for instance, joy. In his book, Orthodoxy, the earliest 20th century author writes this. Uh, G.K. Chesterton writes this. The mass of men have been forced to be gay about the little things, but sad about the big ones. The mass of men have been forced to be gay about the little things, but sad about the big ones. You hear what he's saying? Apart from the supreme importance of Jesus, we don't have an answer for the big matters of life, of life and death. And without those, our, fi- our foundational stance has to be one of sadness, of despair. Because until we have satisfying answers to those questions, we're left with despair. And so we're left seeking out the small little pleasures to try to cover up and deny the foundational despair. Why do we go bouncing around from diversion to diversion? Why do we get obsessed over YouTube clips and celebrity news or sports or promiscuous sex or whatever your thing is? Why do we stand in an outline for hours overnight for a phone? For a phone, right? I mean, with all due apologies, to Steve, actually no apologies to Steve Jobs, a phone is not going to change your life. It's not. It isn't going to answer the big questions, okay, even if you ask Siri, okay, It's not going to take the despair. It's just a small diversion. Why can't most of us stand stillness and silence? Because of the foundational despair. Because Jesus hasn't sunk into the big questions of life. But when you, like Paul, understand, really understand, 
both life and death in the light of the supreme importance of Jesus and the meaning he gives to them both, then you have rock-solid joy. Rock-solid joy that can't be taken. Little things, like, you know, being imprisoned and awaiting trial and perhaps awaiting execution. Little things like that can't take your foundational joy. And like joy, freedom, which must include courage and peace, requires that you understand both life and death in the light of the supreme importance and value of Jesus. Why? Why? Because so long as your answer to the statement, for to me to live is, includes things that can be taken from you, you have to live with anxiety, a certain fearfulness, however that manifests itself in your particular life. And it doesn't matter if they can be taken due to your own failures or someone else's actions or just the circumstances of life or by death. If they can be taken, then you must live with anxiety and fear. If our lives are about our jobs, our standing, our material possessions, our friends, our family, or even about our lives themselves, then we can never live freely because they can all be taken. Our fear and our anxiety aren't just because we don't trust Jesus enough, but they are because we don't treasure him enough. Because we value so many things, all of which can be taken. But in the gospel, in the message of his life and death and resurrection, Christ has given himself to us irrevocably. He can't be taken from us. We can't be taken from him. He won't lose sight of us or let us go. And he won't ever, ever leave us. And so when you live, when for you to live is him and to die is gain even more of him, well, then now you're talking about freedom. Now we can live out our church's name, liberty. Now we, like Paul, can face both life and death with freedom. Because, because as Paul so beautifully and rapturously declares in Romans 8, 35 to 39, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, no. In all these things, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Why? For, and there's that word again, for, I am sure, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, and in case I forgot anything, anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That is freedom. That is liberty. And that's the joy and freedom of being able to say through the help of the Holy Spirit that to me to live is Christ and to die is gain.
But in our passage, that truth ignites a dilemma in Paul, which leads us to our final and brief section in this passage. Look at verses 22 to 26. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for you. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Having declared that for him to live is Christ and to die is gain, Paul finds himself in a dilemma. Now let me first say that Paul isn't saying that living and dying are actually in his control. He knows that they are in God's hands, okay? Nor is he contemplating suicide, okay? It's important to see that this dilemma is a dilemma between two joyful options, okay? It's not, for instance, the dilemma that Hamlet is wrestling with. When Hamlet asks the question to be or not to be, he's wrestling with two horrible options, a life that's filled with the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune on the one hand, or a death that he's afraid of because he doesn't know what's on the other side. And so he's stuck and paralyzed. It's a powerful portrayal of the fundamental despair that Chesterton was talking about when you don't have answers to the big questions. But Paul's dilemma is just the opposite. Life on the one hand that will involve the joy of laboring for Christ and death on the other hand that will mean the joy of even more Christ. And look at the way he frames and deliberates the dilemma. In verse 23, verse 23 says that his personal desire is to depart for and be with Christ because that's far better for him. But verse 24 says, however, that his remaining is better for the Philippians. My departing this life is better for me. My remaining in this life is better for you. And as one pastor says, as soon as you hear Paul frame it that way, you know which one he'll say he would choose. More importantly, he sees Christ keeping him here through that lens. He expects that Christ will keep him here, not for Paul's sake, but for the sake of the Philippians and their progress and joy in the faith. In this, Christ is simply calling Paul and us to follow him. It would have been far better for Jesus to remain in heaven, to enjoy the eternal and infinite fellowship of the Father and the Holy Spirit, and to receive the unbroken praise of the angels. But in obedience to the Father and in love for us, he chose to descend to earth and to take on our human nature and to be subject to sin and brokenness and to be put to death at the hands of sinful men and to be humiliated as he hung on the cross, and to have the full weight of God's justice poured out on him for you and me. And in doing this, he grants us joy. A joy greater and deeper and truer than any joy we can have by pursuing joy for its own sake. And having received that joy, we are set free and fueled to live a life in the pursuit of others' joy in Christ. Look again at verse 25 and 26. 
convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you. Paul expects that Jesus will keep him alive for the purpose of the Philippians' progress and joy in the faith so that they might glory in Christ. Do you understand that that's why Jesus has you here? Why he's delaying granting you the gain of death? It's so that you might work for others' progress and joy in Christ. And the two go hand in hand. Joy without progress is superficial, and progress without joy is lifeless. We're here to pray and serve and speak and fight for one another's joy in Christ, and even to be willing to sacrifice and suffer for that. It's my hope and my prayer, Liberty Church, that you would really understand why Jesus for now delays granting you the gain of death and has you here. It's so that you might fight for one another's joy in Christ. And what is that joy? Well, look at verse 26. Joy finds its end goal and consummation in glorying in Jesus Christ in acknowledging his supreme and surpassing importance. Christ, his supreme importance, is joy's foundation, its sustenance, its goal, and its consummation. That is why we are here. So I want to close by thanking you, Liberty Church, for helping increase my joy in Christ for these last five years. And I hope that in some small measure, I was able to do the same for you. Now I want to urge us to continue to fight for one another's joy in Christ until he grants us the gain of being in his presence. Let me pray. Jesus, we lift one simple prayer to you that we would be able to echo Paul's words that for all of us to live is Christ and to die is gain. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you make that the heartbeat of our lives? For our joy in your glory, for the joy and the blessing of this city, for the glory of the name that is above all names, would you do that work in us today and every day until he calls us home or until he returns? We pray these things in the name of Christ, who is our life, who is our everything. Amen.